Hi, I'm Rohadad, the host of Cause Kitchen, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the change makers who use the incredible power of food to create a social, cultural, and environmental impact. In each episode, we will be exploring topics around food sustainability, food origins and justice, and the future forward practices that are revolutionizing our communities and generations to come. So join me as we learn about creating a food future that is built on transparency, equity, and a system that provides food access for all. In our very first episode, we're going to be speaking to Nahla Thabba. Nahla, who is a supper club host, a culinary ethnographer, and a voracious experimenter in the kitchen. She holds a master's in curatorial practice from the Bat School of Art and Design, and her culinary practice combines her commitment to the slow-paced, labor-intensive, and meditative methods of preparing food. In this episode, we're going to discuss how she developed an interest in cooking and how she creates a social and cultural impact through her supper clubs and the food trails that she hosts at Frying Pan Adventures. So let's dive right into it. Nala, thank you so much for being on Cause Kitchen. How are you doing today? Very good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So I wanted to dive right into the fact that you have a arts background, right? And how how did food come into that equation? I mean, of course, food and arts is something that is obviously interlinked, but I just want to understand, is this something that you've grown up with? Were you introduced to food at an earlier age? How did your interest kind of like, you know, start? So the idea of food being a big part of my life is something I think that many of us can relate to. And everyone wants to believe that their mom and their grandmothers were the best cooks ever. I fundamentally believe that. So that was very much a big part of my life. But both my grandmother, my maternal grandmother and my mother had delved into the idea of food ethnography in different ways. My grandmother and grandfather were posted in Washington, D.C. in the 50s. And it was over there that my maternal grandmother had a cooking show, actually. She was introducing Bengali food to the the American audience. And she was a columnist as well at the time. My mother is uh, an artist with a background in graphic design and she had contributed to putting together a cookbook called Pakistani Cooking Made Easy. I have it next to me right now. And I remember experiencing the entire journey that she had to go through to like photograph everything, collect these recipes, assemble it together at a time where there was no Photoshop or computers to to digitize these things. I was also someone who loved watching travel and culture shows. Being bicultural myself, I just felt that there was a role for me to play and how stories of different cultures were presented, but particularly through food. So I definitely practiced that role of being a presenter in front of the mirror and on our lunch table very, very frequently. Like this is something I was fascinated by. Yeah. And also being an artist, we are makers by nature. We, we, we can't help ourselves. And so the times when I didn't have access to a studio space, I feel like I needed to purge that, that energy of 
connecting to materials somehow. And so the kitchen for many years kind of took over as this inviting studio space where I could make things come to life. And moving away from home and as generations uh, started to turn over, so when my grandparents uh, I eventually lost and just thinking about people in diaspora, food became this very anchoring thing that really pacified me from homesickness. And having the power to learn how to cook the dishes that I grew up with also just became something that turned into a lifestyle for me, which is very un-Dubai if, if you're here as an expat on your own. Like takeaway is so major here. Restaurants are so abundant. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I still love that side <laughs> of Dubai. I still do it. I'm so guilty of that. But I also made it a point to practice cooking. At home. And this is yes. only something that has happened once you moved out and were living on your own. Definitely. I mean, I don't know if you can relate, but you're never really allowed into your mom's kitchen. Like, it's not a thing. They're secretly very possessive. But also, I feel like my mother came from a generation that sort of tied domesticity with anti-feminism and actually wanted to make sure that we didn't like we disassociated from this idea of the role of a person in a kitchen and so it was not that convenient I think because I ended up going to college and having no idea how to make much and I gained like 15 kgs as a result because I was eating like pesto and toast and cereal and pizza. <laughs> <laughs> what a great diet so when you got into the food space, how has yes. it been so far for you? Like now, now that you are working as an artist in the food space, I feel like the supper club that you host, is that like a combination of both your, you know, the, the artistic side and then you bring in the food? Tell us a little bit more about the supper club that you host. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because ultimately it started as this desire to feel more anchored and connected to a place like Dubai. I grew up in a house where people were popping over to eat every single day, like whether it's a neighbor, a friend, um, a friend of the family, like the, the home was never empty of people. And coming to Dubai at an age where I wanted to feel connected to people more than ever inspired me to open up my home. I feel like once you enter a person's home here, because the city is so busy and everything is fast paced, it's like really entering someone's sacred space. Hmm. And so that was one aspect of it, just this desire to have people over, to dote over them. But the supper club itself as well, had I had started it many years ago as a way to also fundraise. Um, the Syrian war had broken out a few years previously, and I just felt that having moved from Jordan to the UAE, I really felt strongly about wanting to find a way to continue to support uh, back home. So I had a friend working at an NGO and we would transport the money, the, the funds raised to her and she was able to then tell me exactly where it was going. So this idea of 
like specific fundraising and explaining to people why I was doing this was was something that was very important to me and I would host this dinner once a month yeah uh, on the floor of my living room so it was like a majlis style layout and I would have 20 people and just cook this feast uh, this is of course um, before regulations around fundraising became very strict uh, so that was something that eventually dissolved Okay. What I look at with my supper clubs today is, again, this, it's almost like the social experiment of getting people around a table, being very subtle about moderating a discussion, and then presenting dishes that are evolutions in their, in themselves. So I cook seasonally. My, my, my meals like infuse a lot of things, things that I might have come across, things that have inspired me but also thinking about the guests who are at the table as well. So last minute, something might be added that might make me think, oh, okay, given that this person has just spoken about this. So my dishes are ever-changing. I cook seasonally. I think about what inspires me. I think about my moods and also the people who come to the table. So if a last-minute switch to make something more acidic, uh, more spicy is kind of dependent on what is going on around the table. Okay. And so I explain to my guests that, you know, you're, you're coming here with the unique experience of dishes that were made for you. Yeah. And your feedback is part of this evolving process of what's going to happen next. Yeah. And each dish is tied to many things. I mean, it's anchored usually in a, in a story, a feeling of nostalgia, something that I'm thinking about down to a technicality that I'm experimenting with. Nice. Nice. And do you disclose the menu from before? Do people know what they're going to be experiencing? Is there a particular <laughs> cuisine? How you know something? I used to love the thrill of going to restaurants where I didn't know what the menu was going to be. I loved that element of surprise. So these days, uh, given given our dietary uh, needs and, you know, uh, our requirements, I do disclose hints of it. So maybe certain aspects, like I'll, I'll mention what the main meals are, but also just prepare people for the fact that you know, you're you're going to be in for a few surprises, so you need to embrace that. Okay, okay, that's lovely. And how long have you been uh, within the supper club scene? Gosh, I mean, again, like four years ago, it had a very different face. It was mostly my friends or friends of friends or different networks. But let's say formally, like on, on Instagram, <laughs> through <laughs> direct messaging and all of that, I launched in January. Uh, I had a few supper clubs before, so January of this year. Okay. <laughs> okay. But I've, I organized a few test runs in October through till January, and then I launched fully. And then, of course, COVID happened, and that changed the game. Yeah. I'm going to come to the impact that COVID has had on the supper club scene, because I do feel like mm -hmm. in the past few, I think in the last couple of years is when the entire supper club movement has really picked up within the region. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I, I feel like now in this post COVID era that we're in, do you 
what do you feel like the future holds for it? Like we're talking about like the restaurant fabric changing a little bit. We've we're also talking about like ghost kitchens entering the space. And now we're also talking mm-hmm. about like supper clubs being over here. So what do you think about? I mean, personally, for me, I feel like this is going to gain a lot more traction simply because of it being in a more intimate setting, right? I mean, you don't really know the people that you're going to be seated with, but like it's in a controlled environment. And that's what everybody is going for now. What do you think about, um, you know, the future of supper clubs in this region in a post-COVID era? So, you know, it's it's a tough one because it's devastating to see so many restaurants close. It is devastating to see so many of your favorite chefs not be able to do what they do. And you realize that the the gratitude and validation you get by by cooking like it's a labor of love and it's something that 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 doesn't go away like what once you have it in you to want to produce you continue to produce and so i think the longevity of the chef or the cook will will never end it'll just need to take on a different form now the idea of being in a controlled environment yes absolutely i feel that uh it's in like in my observation now that i've sort of relaunched quietly it's been really nice to see people around the table again so it's that noise it's that clutter that that chatting and i think people absolutely miss that just you know whether they're coming as friends to to just hang out or or meet new people that desire to to have a human connection is definitely there and i think post covid it's something that we won't take for granted again so so that's one thing i would say but you know it's just so hard to predict because i also just get this feeling of you know it can take one wrong dinner table to cause something that can be extremely irresponsible so like routinely i i get tested i try to put like frameworks in place where it's like okay if you don't feel well please you know you you need to let me know like i'm okay with cancellations i get it but it's it's still so difficult to navigate so i've been like and on this conflicting side of yes wanting to provide the space but also understanding how serious it is if something went wrong and i think you need to obviously make these changes on literally like a day-to-day basis like the whole concept of like yeah, pre-planning absolutely. and having it all organized to the t is something that you just have uh-huh. to like you have to throw out of the window at this point because it's just yes. what are you going to do and and of course you know some dishes take a few days to prep so you you do like i kind of uh organized myself so that those dishes ahead of time would not be a loss if something changed like i'm trying to make my labor more reasonable for me mm. so that in case anything happens it would be okay when i was chatting to a friend a fellow artist She was telling me that the one thing she really misses is sitting in a coffee shop on her own and just working because she felt the comfort of background noise around her. So it really comes to show that us as humans like even having a meal on your own is one thing. Like to be alone in a crowded environment is just as worthy as being on a table. Like it's almost the same feeling in a sense that you're anchored somewhere 
And so to be able to bring back just even an element of that is is moving for sure. I think you you're feeding off of the energy of the space of the people that are around you. So, yes. Right. Like, so, yes, yeah. you are sitting by yourself, but it's just that I, I think all of these very basic things that we used to, like you said, completely take for granted stepping out, going to a mm-hmm. cafe like it's all just I think now we realize the importance of it. Like there were very small, minute details mm-hmm. that really just built up our life on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Right. And also, you know, coming back to restaurants, it's, it's tough because you also don't want to be the person that takes away from a restaurant's livelihood, right? Like as a supper club host. Okay. Like that's, it's, it's, it's a, it's a different kind of debate to have because it feels kind of unfair, but you're also presenting something that's, different in a sense but I still think we need to do our parts in supporting everybody in the food scene as as much as we possibly can so even if you cannot go to a restaurant try to order from them to just keep them going and this is something that was extremely beautiful to see during COVID how much people were doing kind of their runs of supporting one another so even within the supper club community when we all stepped up our game to have a kind of delivery service from home yeah we all ordered from each other like we made sure that once a week there was there was something going on and it was the same with our favorite restaurants too that is wonderful that is absolutely wonderful you mentioned something about obviously when covid hit because i have a hospitality background myself i know that there was a very large like support local movement that started at that point and i know that frying pan adventures um did something really really interesting with ravi i believe Yes, with a few restaurants, actually. Okay, could you could you speak a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So that was our gift your neighbor a tiffin box. I, I need to remember the name of the campaign, but this was incredible on, on the team's part because, you know, we felt all of a sudden that we had abandoned the restaurants that we had been working with for years. And... To suddenly, you know, check up on them on the phone and hear that business was so bad. And because we knew every single person working at these restaurants who owned them, we knew they were in really, really big trouble. You could not afford to shut your restaurants for one day, let alone a month or two months. And at the same time, we were very much aware of the fact that uh, within our community, we had quite a few friends collecting the names of people who had lost their incomes during this time. And of course, you know, as as a result of just volunteering at, um, at the different uh, consulates, we were already seeing those vast numbers of people, of queues, of, of those really just in need of a meal very early on, especially operating in areas like Deira and Bar Dubai. So that apocalyptic feeling I was, I was seeing uh, really, really early on in the year due to, due to the tours and walks. And so what the team did was they designed a setup whereby you or me who had the desire to help during this time and who could spare a little bit of cash 
to support what that funds would funnel towards the restaurants so the restaurant gets their full income and those meals would be delivered to those we had vetted out collectively with our friends in the community who had received uh, the the contact details of people in vulnerable situations and so that was a system that that worked out really well. I need to pull out the numbers or you can add them to your show notes, but it was really incredible because it also showed us as a team that, you know, food w- was never just about the presenting or the storytelling or the cultural aspect of it, but there's this rawness and humanness and how we need to take care of each other and repositioning ourselves from being presenters to social workers and literally like the span of of a month and I'm sure you can relate is something you know it's it's not for everybody it's not an easy task and yet we felt like we had no choice you know you you absolutely had to step in somehow and this this was a way to do it and this was a model that seemed to work as well as possible yeah yeah because i mean i remember when the lockdown happened because i was working within the restaurant space myself i i did fall into the essential category so I had to commute. Like I was stepping out, so I wasn't under uh-huh. this work from home situation ever. But I just remember the yes. it happened overnight, right? And obviously it's not something yeah. anybody saw coming at all. So it just like you said, it was this apocalyptic feeling. I, I used to drive down and it was just dreadful for me to just see like the entire Jamera stretch like shut down. And and then just kind of carrying that anxiety back home and then just kind of hearing about people that are so close to you either getting infected or you know getting uh, losing their jobs and like having to you know not not have any other source of income so you're right like I think the entire thing hit home for everybody and which is why like Mm -hmm. everybody just kind of like the community rallied together to you know help each other out yeah and actually, there were some really inspiring restaurants doing this very early on. One, I haven't had the chance to try their food. Uh, dish per dish, I hope yes, I pronounced yes, it. Yes, yes, dish yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they, they from really early on were collecting donations. You would just send it to a bank account. Donations slash orders, you can say. And they would just inform you that, okay, that amount of money that we collected from you has provided seven biryani meals and our kitchen is open these people just need to come and collect it and yeah this is this is what they were doing and i'm so moved by the fact that many restaurants considered this idea of needing to be a community kitchen also just to keep their livelihoods going in the sense that they needed to work like they needed to also feel and you can probably relate like the fact that you haven't worked from home ever since since this period it's a big responsibility and and i think that's what food does like it empowers you to think that you know i'm the feeder right so i'm a i'm a giver i'm a provider yeah and i think for for the very first time or like after a very long time people now realize the importance of food more than just like a recreational task 
I mean, this is more so yes. in the first world, you know, context. But like for us, hundred percent, it, it was just recreational. It was like a leisurely activity. But um, mm-hmm. now it's kind of like this is an essential like this is yes. this is something that nourishes us. You know, like this is what keeps us alive. You know, I'm so glad you brought this up because this was an insight that I also had quite early on during COVID. And like you said, in in the first world, you saw this flood of people wanting to bake and their banana bread and getting so excited to finally cook. And I had so many friends messaging me like, wow, we discovered cooking. I'm like, yeah, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome. But... Yeah, like, welcome. (laughs) I'm glad you finally found the time to do it. But then, okay, it was exciting for like 10 days. And then the dishes started to creep up. The, the, the burning, the mistakes, the like, they, I think people also really started to realize and empathize with the fact that it is so much work that people probably had no clue that it takes so much. (laughs) So I feel like, yes, like there is this newfound appreciation for restaurants, makers and people in the food industry that is different from before. And it's, and you know, it's, it's not like anybody wanted to hide their, their recipes or like not share. On the contrary, I made it a point to share information on how you can cook very simply as much as I possibly could or like people would throw at me their ingredients in their pantry because there there were very specific times to go to the supermarket and I would offer solutions and there was no way you would want to deprive somebody of that information but what was interesting is because they had to try these things for themselves they ended up understanding what it <laughs> Yeah, I think it's similar to parents realizing, like, I mean, I think collectively as a society, we now realize just the kind of work that teachers put in, right? Like once the kids are yeah. home, right? Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> so it's not like, okay, so now the kids with you at home the whole time. Yeah. You realize what the teachers have to go through. So uh, who's the problem Absolutely. now, you know? <laughs> Is <it> yeah, <laughs> that's a really teacher? good one. So, yeah, on the note of cooking at home in the first world context, I want to quickly touch upon because I just wanted to check. I I don't know if you've done something about like, I know you've touched upon meditative cooking and have you done something around zero waste as well? Like zero waste cooking? Have you spoken? A a little bit. So it's definitely something that I started to learn through friends of mine who were very interested in zero waste cooking. One of them is my colleague at Frying Pan Adventures, Stephanie Mahmoud. Her Instagram account is Everyday Feasts. And it was always really brilliant to see how different ingredients could be recycled, uh, used or, or stretched in a way. But also, again, like my mom was always very good at transforming leftovers. Like if we had a stew that was cooking one day, the next day it would be filled with a bechamel sauce and macaroni and baked in the oven and turned into something else completely. Or this idea of just freezing certain things. Like if you batch make certain things like sauces or broths, the idea would be to then like freeze it and store it for another time. 
So those are elements that like on a very practical level, I work with a lot. But as of recently, as I started to explore the alchemy of dyeing textiles and making pigments. So this is part of my art practice. I use all my food scraps now. <laughs> To, to contribute well not all I mean like my coffee grounds and anything that's organic like vegetables or fruits or even flowers that I receive they all go into that so they do end up taking on a new life that's phenomenal so do you use those for for coloring I believe right yes wow okay that's incredible yeah and um, so that's one way you can use them yeah yeah I mean I mean as long as they're being utilized in some shape or form because one thing that I on an individual level and because I think in the household that I've grown up in food waste is something that has always been like spoken about right and um, one of my mm -hmm. biggest concerns like I am that friend on the table that's telling everybody like no finish that food or take it to go and I feel like in Agreed. The context of Dubai, it's, I don't know if it's like a status thing or people are conscious about like taking food to go because it, I don't know what the sort of like the psychology behind it is, but maybe people just don't think along those lines, but people don't, people are very comfortable with wasting food. And that for me is just, it, it has been very uncomfortable. During COVID, I realized because when people didn't have access to, like you said, supermarkets, just, you know, generally, people started digging deeper into their pantries. People started being... Or overbuying. Or overbuying, <laughs> right? That, again, yeah. is a luxury that you are able to afford. Overbuying, yeah. hoarding. And then there were some people that were digging deeper into their pantries. You're right. So just for me, I, I thought that I, I started hearing a lot of people meal planning. So that they could reduce their food mm -hmm. waste. I guess like in a way, because of that restriction placed by the government, you you had to meal plan. You had to kind yes, of like dig deeper into the pantry. So, yeah, that's that's definitely another way. And, you know, it's interesting you touch upon the status thing, because I do remember observing different households growing up. And I feel like. For us coming from Eastern ones, I mean, you're raised with this idea that nothing should be left on your plate and you need to consider everybody else who cannot afford that. And you need to imagine that. And of course, oh, my parents would paint these horrible pictures and you would feel so guilty. And it, it was it was a thing. But then I remember observing other households where actually it was the thing, a thing to leave food because it suggested that you were somebody who cared very much about your appearance and your figure and you were figure watching. It was really interesting. But even like you said, it's so simple. Take the food away, keep it, have it for yourself or distribute it, you know? And, and what I found so humbling and so connecting about a place like the UAE is that a cab driver or someone like someone working in my building or anybody working on a construction site has never refused that kind of offering from me. I'll just say like, hi, I, I have this. Would, would you like it? And so don't like we should not we should no longer see it as something that's inappropriate to do or. You know, I, I know that there, there are many laws and you, you can probably relate like with, with food and safety, particularly with hotel legislations, like how, how that works. But on a human level, like where you know that it's just come out of the restaurant or it's just come out of your stove, 
down to the person, you you can do that. And I think Ramadan sharing fridges as well, that campaign is was one of the finest examples of encouraging people to understand that it is okay to do that. It is absolutely okay to do that. I think it's just a matter of having more of these conversations, having people like yourself just kind of yeah. like vocally putting it out there. And it's just like, I mean, it's normal, but I think sometimes in, in particular places, you need to normalize it further, right? Because I know that a lot of yeah. people, a lot of my friends are just like, no, but it's half eaten. Is it going to offend the other person? And I'm just like, no, it's really not. Because the meals that we tend to have, and like you said, that Dubai is such a delivery heavy community, mm-hmm. that the meals that we have on a daily basis, like multiple times a day, aren't the kind of meals that, let's say, um, our cab drivers or security guards or, or, you know, the blue collar workers can afford. So it's it's a, it's yes. a luxury for them. And I think it's just about... I think it's just about keeping your eyes and ears open, you know, and just what yeah. that's that's pretty much it. It's it's not it's not that difficult. Agreed. Uh, on my supper clubs as well, I've encouraged people that this is a no waste supper club in the sense that, listen, if there's anything you want to take home, I'll pack it right now. Your name is on it. Otherwise, I make it a point to distribute that same night as well, because, yes, like. You know, part of us also, culturally speaking, we cook for the masses. Like it's it's kind of a terrible habit. And there was this really interesting campaign, a Ramadan campaign about it. I, I want to say it was run on like aired on Dubai TV, but I'm not sure where a lady is given specific quantities from a supermarket to work with to make her iftar. And then it it then compares to what she would the quantities that she would normally make with, and it showed like food wastage, but also kind of said to her and suggested to her like, "Hi, it's okay that you made this portion. Look, you finished it. Your family enjoyed it. Like, don't worry so much." And so we we also have this thing where okay, if we're going to cook in those in those amounts because we we can't help ourselves. Again, like you said, it's a status thing as well. You know, you you don't want someone like coming over and saying like oh, she only served us this much. At least make it a point to have a like a distribution system that follows that. Yeah, and I think we we're in that space where it's become fairly easy. Right. It's it's become mm-hmm. a lot more easier. So I think, like you said, it's just about having just pre-planning and that can avoid a lot yeah. of wastage. Can we dive into how you got into frying pan adventures and how Absolutely. is that like, how has that been for you? So tell us a little bit God, about it's, frying pan adventures. It's such a good story. So I have been a guide, a researcher and now Officially, I would say a podcast host at Frying Pan Adventures for the last four years. Actually, I stopped counting. It's one of those jobs that I've loved so much. And so I don't count the years or the time spent doing it. But I came across Arva and Farida's work when I first moved to Dubai. And I was just searching for opportunities to do something a little bit differently or to explore parts of Dubai that I had grown up knowing about but wasn't necessarily sure how to explore on my own and so it started with me being extremely eager to get on one of their tours and I was so fortunate to have joined their Ramadan 
experiences that they did in collaboration with Gulf Photo Plus. And from there I met Arva. I was so inspired by the tour. And especially because I came from a background in urbanism as well. And and this this interest in, in cities as a space to tell stories and have narratives. I was also very interested in migrant communities and kind of the intersections of different people. So that was always something that was a big part of my career. And I was also getting into food at a surface level of, of being aware of cooking and preparing and blogging about it. And so when I asked Arva if there were any openings and she said, yes, I applied. She uh, she finally got back to me with this like really fun interview process. So the first thing I had to do was research cuisine of her choice. The second really pressurizing thing I had to do was take her to a restaurant, imagining that she was visiting Dubai for the first time and had a layover of four hours. At the time, I was based in Sharjah actually. So my, my, my work and my commute and most of my knowledge was Sharjah based and a little bit of Dubai, but not really. And this was so daunting given that Arva herself has had an incredible history of being a very prominent food blogger here, but particularly mapping out every kind of restaurant in, in, in the sphere of what Arva would have approved. So I was like, oh my God, this is so scary. I spent weeks uh, asking my, my cousins who grew up here for a bit of assistance. I explored and explored until I finally settled on Grub Shack in Sharjah. It had opened earlier that year that I moved and I absolutely loved that place. Yeah. And then I had to train to get my license. So that in itself is a process. You spend three weeks at DTCM, you have an ex- like several exams until you pass. And then I had to go through the third tier of learning to pass Arva and Farida's presentation skills and navigation skills. And so that took an additional couple of months until I could fully be on the ground. But I've not looked back. We are a team of seven presently, but at the time we were like five or four. And yeah, four actually. And it was a really, really amazing thing to see the numbers roll in to realize that our small team have taken well as of last year 10,000 guests on our tours that is phenomenal congratulations for me yeah I mean and when when I think about that I think that's 10,000 people who have been impacted by this idea of unpacking geopolitical issues when it comes to food appropriation uh, Dubai being this misleading place and understanding that, that there's more to it or what we grew up knowing as Dubai is very different and to do all this in a light-hearted four and a half hour walk where you get to support these restaurants and taste all these foods, hear stories of our ancestors, our parents, was just, for me, that's, as you said earlier, cultural impact and the impact of storytelling is so powerful when it comes to diffusing and debunking certain myths about a place or a region. Yeah, 
food is so, so powerful. Like it spills into so many different areas. Yeah. It's, which is why like your profile to me was just, I was just like, there's nobody better than Nahlat for me to speak to and like start this <laughs> with, because you, you really, with your background in urbanism, like you said, and like social impact, cultural impact with your supper clubs and frying pan adventure, it's just, it makes us realize just how interconnected food is to literally everything. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. You cannot disconnect it from like economics, politics, history, environment, culture. It is at the core of everything. Yes. So yeah. Tell us about when on your tours, is there like a set food trail that you follow or is there, um, are you guys constant? I mean, I know that there are four different types of trails that you guys have, if I'm not wrong. So yes. Absolutely. So we were also offering limited edition ones. So those are one-off experiences, but typically our signature trails have a very specific route and a script that each of us has personalized in our own way. So as long as we touch on the specific information around those foods and how we present them, that's totally fine. As long as then we can add like our personal flair to it. So Every one of us on a tour is a character and a very different character to the other. So it's you and your luck, really. And yeah, I mean, things change, though, in, in a sense that the, the unpredictable thing about older parts of Dubai is that a restaurant may have stood the test of time for like 20 years. And then you'll discover that they're shutting down and especially with COVID like this is this has been something that that has kept us on edge actually realizing that some of the places we feature might not be there we also make changes based on what we feel we need to feature like if there's a certain topic we want to talk about or a certain country or a cuisine then we're happy switching that around as well there was one time, for example, we had been going to this Amarati restaurant for a very long time. And this was a vetted one. I mean, we all absolutely love it and swear by it. And one day I was passing by, as I always do, and I had all my guests and I saw that it had caught on fire and that had like they had kind of um, what you call it when they see, they had sealed it up. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So we suddenly don't have a, one of our restaurants on the tour. And I had to think on my feet about then making sure guests were like offered some something else that could make up for that. But how do you make up for that loss? You know, it's it's so hard, especially when we've studied yeah. that cuisine so much and it becomes all about that. So we have to be fluid and flexible, but there's a lot of work that goes into choosing a restaurant as well. I can imagine. I can imagine. Post-COVID, are you guys back? Are you guys taking bookings? Has have, have the tours begun again? What's happening? So we are back. Amazing. We are yes. Uh again, it's it's because we've we've missed it, but also we've come to realize that people do too. We've definitely had organized a lot of protocol in place. So the tours have been reduced by half in terms of the number of people. Everybody receives a sanitizing kit. There are many dishes that were once presented on like one plate, let's say, that everybody would, would take from that can no longer happen. So everyone sort of receives their individual tallies, if yeah. you wish. And yeah, so we're still going and still trying to navigate this. But of course, it's it's just 
uncertain, you know, um, it might be okay to, to, to start for a while and then you never know. Right. I guess, um, like we discussed earlier, you just have to play by the ear and as play by the ear and we're just trying to focus on, on other avenues. So practicing and doing what we're doing, but in other forms. So whether it's going back to writing or, uh, producing content because ultimately that's that's what we do we're researchers we're ethnographers and surely those those two things can be put into place and applied on on all kinds of mediums and platforms and i think it's a very difficult thing for us to accept but it might have to be the way and so our podcast for example since covid that was something that we revived and what arva did to kind of make us all feel motivated was we all became hosts or guests on on this show. And we recently managed to get featured on Emirates in-flight entertainment. So that's like a huge achievement. It's been hard work, but such great episodes as well. So again, like if there's another way to get messages across, I think this is really the time for us to all think collectively on how we need to do things a bit differently yeah yeah that i mean that's such that's such a huge accomplishment congratulations yeah honestly (laughs) thank you yeah yeah it's so exciting i'm gonna move on to your covid recipe book and then we can speak a little bit about the manifesto yeah so tell us about this illustration illustrated recipe book that you've created Absolutely. So I was commissioned by a previous colleague of mine who's an artist here called Nasser Nasrallah to be part of Corniche 2020. I think that's what we're calling it. And what he had done was rallied his favorite illustrators and comic book artists in the country to have these drop in and draw meetup sessions. And we uh, the the group would build towards creating a zine or a comic book or an anthology together this year with things being a little bit different we were meeting on zoom and having these hangouts and i was definitely feeling very very privileged to be part of something like that because the illustrators and comic artists uh on in this edition are so incredible they're all people i absolutely admire and the the idea to create a recipe book i mean this is something i had friends asking me to do for such a long time one of my best friends got married a few years ago he's like make me a cookbook for my wedding gift and i'm like hmm okay but When it came down to writing it, it was so challenging. At the time, I wasn't necessarily sure of my food identity. Like I I could tell that I had strands of it, but I also found the structure of a cookbook, let's say, or a recipe book kind of, um, I don't know. I don't know if it fully suited how I wanted to tell the story of a recipe. Mm. And I have uh, the, the cookbook I mentioned earlier that my mom had worked on. So it's called Pakistani Cooking Made Easy. And I remember seeing this at the back, even as a child and thinking this is so inspiring. So the quote is by someone called VM Miller. I'm not sure who VM is. And it goes like this. 
Recipe for a good day. Take two parts, unselfishness and one part of patience and work together. Add plenty of industry and lighten with good spirits and sweeten with kindness. Pour in smiles as thick as honey and boil by the warmth which steams from a loving heart. If this fails to make a good day, the fault is not with the recipe, but with the cook. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember admiring it stylistically as well. This this idea of a recipe being more than than just measurements, but 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 also this idea that it can infuse so many other things like raw material was not just necessarily about foods. And when COVID happened, of course, and I guess I had more time to think. And at the time I was working with a writer and mentor, Kevin Jones, to produce my food manifesto. What we came to realize is that my style of cooking was definitely also directed by just everything that was going on. You know, it's, um, <laughs> it's, it, it bounces off an episode of Black Mirror that I'm watching when I'm rolling vine leaves or, you know, I, I choose like a tomato from a certain country because that is the country I believe in that I want to support. You know, it's a political choice as well. Um, it's, it's, you know, it was loaded with these anxieties and like sometimes even just watching how certain things were made became so symbolic of of, of larger feelings. So when you strain yogurt, for example, to make labne, I really saw the act as being very poetic because you put it in this filter and then the whey pours out and it pours out like tears, you know, and it's like the salty liquid. And so the recipe book that I produced for, takes on this form of like a comic book in a way where I tried to imagine my pantry or the ingredients that I was working with as souls who really had something to say about this day and age and what it means to be yeah part of a world where we live in this like urban fast-paced city and and this life and then COVID is happening and they're watching me the cook like use them as a way to heal me and and what that means so it's this like narrative of of many things going on that's presented quite vaguely but quite emotionally as well and it's almost like a diary of what it felt like to be alone at the time but there are still tangible recipes that you can follow they're just presented in in, in ways that like encompass all these things I think it's going to make for like an incredible memorabilia to have um, I hope this so. time yeah no absolutely when is it completed? When does it come out? So the the book itself will be a compilation of all the artists and it will be presented at Focal Point, which is a book fair that takes place at Sharjah Arts Foundation. I believe this will happen in either November or December. Right now, this year? Yes. Amazing. Yeah. That's soon. Yes. That's super yes. soon. Okay. Yeah. Well, congratulations and all the best for it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And to go to our next topic would be the food manifesto, which is, again, very interesting. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to understand what was the need for a food manifesto? How did that thought like come up? And can you tell us, tell like people about what exactly is a food manifesto? 
Absolutely. So Kevin Jones, my mentor, was brought into my world to to help me, you know, really understand what made up my art practice. And I needed to have certain texts in place that needed to be shared and, and understood by my audiences. So this is like typically what happens in, in the setup of, of an artist. You have your bio, your artist statement. And he was very intent on making me realize and helping me build the confidence that my identity in food was a very specific one. And it was a really tough one to write because it started off with me trying to understand what I wasn't in, in the scene, let's say. So it's not like I came with this culinary background. I did not necessarily learn these things in a formal way. Recipes were not repeated. Like there's not the standardized thing that I, I present. I'm not a purist in my cooking, which, which is blasphemous in other ways and quite controversial, but like there's a reason to it. Like the logic is there. It wasn't just this thing that, you know, I was negating or avoiding because or deflecting from because I didn't know any better. So it was really about understanding why I do what I do and sort of putting it against my art practice. So you can say that a manifesto is like a monologue on, on how you present yourself and why you present yourself and why you choose to do what you do. And oh my gosh, it we took like ages to write this in a way that stylistically use certain words around food so I can read from it right now yes please and uh, quote like one line the dishes at my supper clubs are a mosaic of my feelings research and stories experiments and my ever oscillating states of mind they are a culmination of the different ways I marry the culinary world and my art practice then move into kind of using recipes as a way to to speak a little bit more. So my gazpacho fuses the plumpest locally grown yet mangled tomatoes with stale breads made by a friend seeking to escape his hectic life. I'm blitzing this as black mirror disperses its dystopian aura draining me. I balance this emotionally depleting gazpacho puree with a generous helping of my doting love by throwing in crisp juicy wedges of watermelon. This yin and yang of flavors is a sacred gesture in an unsacred world. Yeah, so kind of writing between the strands of like poetry, understanding it as an art practice, but but then technically <laughs> also saying something about how I prepare foods helped me kind of get it. And Again, there's no specific identity. And I think it's interesting when people come to the table and try to describe what I do to others, because again, I'm presenting Middle Eastern food mainly, I guess you, you can call it that, but it's, it's very playful there. And then, and then when questions around my cultural heritage come into place, like, oh, you're, you're half South Asian as well. What, why don't you cook that for us? And I'm like, it's not necessarily that I'm then going to go back to like one heritage and, and study that and bring that to the table. But I do believe those flavors are present, but they've been woven in in a way that's just a little bit quieter and more subtle. 
It's not like, oh, I'm half this, I'm half that. So half the dishes are going to be this and half the dishes are going to be that. So it was also really understanding that that's also not the identity. Phenomenal. Wow. Okay. Well, this has been such a great interview. I mean, I, I'm just very mindful of the time that you have. Yeah, this was fun. Really fun. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Nahla, thank you so, so much for your time. This has been such a phenomenally insightful conversation. And I cannot wait to see what the recipe book looks like. And I can't wait to read your manifesto once it's out. And hopefully, you know, <laughs> join you guys on the food tours at Frying Pan. Yes, please do. And it was such a pleasure to chat to you outside of everything else that we've done together. And thank you so much for thinking of me.